before the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what a great balm to the soul uh, this morning as we worship together to hear uh, these truths uh, given in that manner. Would you uh, open your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke? The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 27 of that portion of Luke's uh, Gospel. Luke chapter 5. Let me uh, read these um, verses in your hearing uh, just to remind you, refresh your thinking, and prepare you for the exposition of them. And may the Holy Spirit use them to minister to every one of us in this place and who are watching virtually. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm using as a subject a call and a complaint. Mankind is incurably religious. We see this from the plethora of religions and belief systems in our world. We were created to worship the living and the true God, but the fallen human heart has spawned false religions ad infinitum, and I might add ad nauseum. All the world's religions, except Christianity, are of the do-it-yourself variety. They espouse a do-it-yourself salvation. To name-check, there's Buddhism, Islam, and there are Christian aberrations such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. None of the counterfeit systems can succeed in bringing eternal life to sinners. In fact, that's what a religion is to do. It is to confer upon sinners eternal life. It is to give them the prospect and the reality of life beyond the grave. But any religion apart from Jesus Christ is utterly incapable of doing so because it is the invention of men. They all, in fact, bypass the only divinely provided means to that end, that end of eternal life, salvation. It's clear in Scripture that there is only one means whereby a person can come to receive this greatest of all blessings. Peter, preaching, recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, And there is no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. End of quote. There is no other name. Given under heaven, God has given that name, and that name is the person of Jesus Christ, his works and his, uh, his person and works, works he did on the cross. Jesus Christ is the sole Savior for the souls of men. The passage before us, the one I just read in your hearing, of course, 
is one of the records of the saving ministry of Christ. The narrative chronologically follows the account of the previous verses. As the words in verse 27 of our text indicate, they say, after that he went out. That is, after forgiving the sins of the paralyzed man and healing him of his malady. Our Lord then moves on and he's walking along the Sea of Galilee as he continues his saving activity. And so in our text, we're going to begin to look at that and we're going to give a a heading here uh, called a sovereign summons. Sovereign summons in verse 27. There's another man in need of divine forgiveness. The divine forgiveness that accompanies salvation. And that man, our text tells us, is Levi. He is also known as Matthew. Matthew wrote a gospel, you remember, uh, the very first one of the, of the New Testament. Bears his name. But you need to understand, before his saving encounter with Jesus, Levi, our Matthew, was a wretched sinner. He was on a trajectory to eternal perdition. By occupation... He was a tax collector. He worked for the hated Roman occupiers of Israel. By the way, the the Jews felt they only should give their money, their tax, to their own nation, not to these foreign occupiers. Levi, this Jew, was employed by Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. Now, you need to know um, Matthew's tax booth. You see it there in verse 27. He is sitting there, and his tax booth, or shall we say his office, was located at the crossroads of an international trade route. He was able, therefore, to tax imports and exports. Man, they taxed everything. They taxed goods and even people, slaves. Anything that went by, you got, it got taxed. And no doubt, like other tax collectors, he was greedy. I mean, that's the way they were. After all, the Romans hired them and said, you collect taxes for us, and everything above what you give to us, you can keep. So corruption was built into the system. <laughs> Think about it. Well, I got Rome's portion. Who knows what that is now? It's my turn. That was Matthew. Sometimes we can tend to look at biblical writers and personages and think of them as these stained glass saints. Do understand, they didn't get to be stained glass saints by natural birth. Now, Matthew was a uh, telonis, that is, tax collector. He wasn't at the top of the heap. There was another Archetelonus, that was Zacchaeus, chief tax collector. The Telonus, like Matthew, report to the Archetelonus, Zacchaeus, so he had to report up to somebody above him. Now, I'm going to tell you what they would do. Whoa, it's the one who was going to be a tax evader. They would employ thugs to make those who were Unwilling to pay, to pay up. Such was Matthew. His ilk 
were a social pariah in Israel. Is there any wonder? They were seen as traitors to the nation. In fact, uh, they were looked upon in such a way, they barred them from synagogues. And they further weren't allowed to give testimony in court because they were considered liars. I'm sure they were. After all, they'd lie about their business. And you thought paying taxes, you had a burden. (laughs) They were therefore on the bottom rung of society. Scripture, interestingly, you know this because if you read through the New Testament, you see this. Um, Many times in uh, the Gospels, you see tax collectors and sinners in the same verse. So Matthew, or Levi as he's called here in Luke's Gospel, was one of the most hated men in Israel. So he was despised by men and in rebellion against God. I would say he was a candidate in need of grace. Need of grace. And notice something. Jesus noticed him, gazed at him. Verse 27. And in his inherent authority, Jesus, the great initiator of the relationship, said to this sinner, sitting there, despised bad, despised by his countrymen, he said to him, follow me. Wow, how wonderful is that? Follow me. This was a call to salvation. It was a case of sovereign grace. Like all sinners, Levi had nothing to commend himself to God, nothing but his sin. Sinners do not have any redeeming virtue. Nothing in and of themselves that would attract divine approval or acceptance. Absolutely nothing. Zilch. Nada. Sinners. If anything, sinners have demerits, and that's what they do. Actually have demerits. If there are two columns, merits and demerits, there are no there's nothing in the merit column. There's every, the demerit column is filled. This man, um, like all sinners, totally depraved. And when I say totally depraved, he's talking about total depravity. That is, the whole of his person is corrupt. His mind, his will, his emotions. All sinners are like that. We're born that way. We need grace. And when Jesus said to Levi in verse 27, follow me, that was an act of grace. He summoned him from a life of rebellion, summoned him from a life of sin and said, now you're going to follow me. This was irresistible grace or efficacious grace as the theologians call it. Let me explain irresistible grace. It's not that the sinner is resisting God when he summons him to salvation. Irresistible grace is this. In the day of his power, God's power, the Holy Spirit makes the sinner willing. 
Whereas before, he was unwilling, utterly unwilling. Maybe he'd heard the gospel before, maybe somebody witnessed to him, but he said, no, I have no interest in that. I have my own life. I'm living the way I want to live. Don't bother me with that. But the Holy Spirit makes the sinner willing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith. This is grace. God overcoming the sinner's natural, fallen, sinful resistance to Christ. So when Matthew heard, follow me, he was ready to follow Jesus. Jesus saying, follow me, means be in submission to my leadership over your life. Only those who have experienced salvation in Christ will follow him. You think about it, he's the leader, and you're the follower. And the grammar lets us know here in this verse that he did it on a regular basis. It was the pattern of his life. He had been changed. No doubt, before this summons to follow Jesus, Matthew had heard about Christ. Perhaps he's even heard his preaching. Maybe he was under the conviction of sin. No doubt that was the case. And then when Jesus came and looked at him and said, follow me, the Spirit of God worked in his heart and he was ready. It's the marvel of salvation, the marvel of grace. Let me tell you something about this. There is no sinner who has ever been saved who was not saved by grace. I don't care how apparently good somebody may appear to be. There ain't that good. We're all saved the same way by the grace of God. And this man, Jesus said, follow me, verse 28, and he left everything behind. On January 10th, 49 B.C., in violation of orders from the leaders of Rome, Julius Caesar, with his army, crossed a river in northern Italy called the Rubicon. Civil war ensued in Rome. The expression, crossing the Rubicon, has, as you know, passed into our, our language. It's an expression to refer to an irrevocable commitment to something. An irrevocable commitment to something. A point of no return, no turning back. I've crossed the Rubicon. I, I'm, I'm done. I've crossed that line. When Levi left everything behind, as our text says in verse 28, he crossed his spiritual Rubicon. He could not return to his lucrative tax business. And this is why, if you left that booth, you left it permanently. Rome instantly filled it with someone else. You know, that franchise was people always want to do it. So, oh, yes. There, in fact, people, you're reading in uh, King James Publicans, the Publicani, those are people who had wealth and they would buy those tax franchises, hire people, and increase their wealth among the Jews. Somebody was there to snap it up. So once he left everything behind, he was leaving everything behind, he left behind his career. 
He left behind future earthly prospects. He left behind his income. Think about that. From that moment on, he had to trust God to provide for his needs. In, eight, in the 1870s, the Christian songwriter Fanny Crosby, and you know Fanny Crosby. You may not know her very well, but you probably heard the name. You certainly know some of her hymns. She wrote 8,000 hymns. Prolific woman. Blinded um, by medical accident and ignorance to uh, the age of six weeks. She lived to be 94 years old. But during that time, she wrote some of the hymns that we love. Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Remember that one? She wrote also Near the Cross. Grew up, I grew up singing that. Rescue the Perishing. But in 1870, uh, Ms. Crosby had financial troubles. But as was her custom, she prayed. And the man came to her and gave her $5. You say $5? Remember, it's 1870. You could buy a whole lot of Big Macs in 1870 for $5. <laughs> but more importantly, the $5 was this. It was the exact amount she needed. God provided her the exact amount she needed. God's precise. He knows what you need. And he provided for her. She trusted him. After that, Fanny Crosby wrote the hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. The lyrics include this one. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Indeed he does. And whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Whether good things from our perspective or bad things from our perspective, Jesus doeth all things well. She trusted him, just like Matthew did. If Jesus can save your soul, he can sustain your body. If he can provide redemption, he can provide provision. If he can do the greater, the salvation of a soul, he can certainly do the lesser, meeting a temporal need. And Matthew experienced that as he followed Jesus. As a multitude of believers have over the years, we know what it's like to have our needs met by the Lord. So is a sovereign summons. Another thing then, a special feast. Additional evidence of Matthew's transformed life. He, he got up, obeyed Christ to follow him. Now you'll notice what happens. He gave a big reception for him in his house. You say, well, how could he have just lost his job and he's going to throw this big dinner party for Jesus? How can you do that? Think about it. The man had a lot of money. 
start off, don't suspect that he was foolish with his money. But think about what he did. He spent the money that he had knowing he did not have a job any longer. He wanted to honor Jesus. He wanted his former associates, tax collectors, and others who have that tag of sinners to come and to meet Jesus and to hear from him. What can we take from this? This, ours is not to be a privatized faith. We are to be openly Christian. Think about that. You hear it all the time in the media, uh, he or she is the first openly gay whatever. We ought to be openly Christian. We do not or should not keep our commitment to following Jesus Christ, our submission to his authority over our life, the fact that he has saved us by his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, that he is our Lord and Savior. We should not keep that secret from anybody. You might ask, then, what was on the menu? You know, the text doesn't tell us. They're all reclining at the table, you know. They rest on one elbow, and their feet would be extended, and they would commune, and they would talk there. It's really not important what was on the actual menu, but I'll tell you, you might ask the question, what was on the spiritual menu? The text does not disclose it, of course. It does not say what uh, they were discussing, but I'm going to tell you, what I think, what's going on. Do you really think that if you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, he is going to be talking about what the Judah lions are going to do to the Benjamin cubs? Uh-uh. Not, you can, not on your life. What Jesus would be talking about, judging from previous encounters and dinners and who he was and what he did, I'm going to tell you this is what he was doing. He was answering spiritual questions. He was elaborating on the gospel of the kingdom. He was summoning them to repentance. On the menu, spiritually speaking, were eternal issues. Those dinner guests that day in Levi's house heard the gracious Lord speak graciously about the issues of grace and salvation. And guess who's the trophy of grace in there? The host, Levi himself. Well, you should know uh, th that reception would create a problem for the religious individuals, the people who did not have a relationship with the Lord. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Our Lord and his disciples' association with the people whom the scribes, they really deemed them as persona non 
Grate. Unacceptable people. They listened to their criticism. They disdained tax collectors and sinners, quote-unquote sinners, because they didn't see themselves as sinners. So they criticized him. Well, do you think Jesus is going to let that just go by? No. He's going to elaborate his saving mission. That's our third point. Verse 31. Having overheard the criticism that was leveled against him, now our Lord is going to give a divine rationale for his behavior. He says it here in verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Let me explain why Jesus would use an analogy like that. Sick is like a fatal illness that has metastasized to the whole person, rendering him or her spiritually sick with no hope for self-cure or a cure from anyone else, actually. The implication here from our Lord is that he is the physician. Indeed, he is the great physician. He is the one who specializes in things thought impossible. Think, think, think about the medical field. We have a doctor here, so I'm going to say this, and I hope if I get it right, she'll tell me I was wrong. But, <laughs> but we have people who specialize in um, dealing with cancer, oncologists, right? That's what they do. They focus on that. And address it. Jesus, he specialized in harmatiology, the doctrine of sin, sin. He specialized in that men can't fix themselves. They cannot heal themselves. They cannot do anything for themselves with regard to their sin. But Jesus specializes in that. Not only does he make the correct diagnoses, he provides a perfect cure. That's why Jesus is there. That's why he said these words here. You see, it is not those who are well who need a physician. It's those who are sick. As such, Jesus was not among his the six sin sick sinners as a hobnobber. Birds of a feather flock together, comrades in evil. No, no, he went where the sick people were. <laughs> Shall we say he made a house call? The doctor among sick people to heal them. And that's what he did for us. He healed us of our sin sickness. That would have killed us eternally in a place of torment save his deliverance now let me tell you something about Jesus something further about him he was there among sinners but he could not contract the disease of sin we've heard a lot of talk over the past year about uh, healthcare workers and PPE, personal protective equipment that they need to protect themselves as they serve those who are sick, uh, protecting them from 
contracting COVID-19. Jesus, he could be around sinners, with sinners, minister sinners, touch sinners. He could do all of that, but not contract the disease of sin. If you will, he wouldn't have had to wear a mask. Hebrews 7.26 says this about our Lord. He, for he is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Out of this verse, Hebrews 7.26, we can take a few of the words that are there and explain them further to illustrate the reality or express the reality that he could not be touched by our sin and that he is infected by it. The text in Hebrews 7.26 says, holy. That is, without pollution. Throughout his earthly ministry, involved with sinners and their depravity and their wickedness, all of that, he was unpolluted. Undefiled is another term that's used to depict him as he ministered on earth. He was free from contamination. Another phrase is separate from sinners. No sin nature. No sin nature. So here's this great physician who can heal and who cannot be sickened by the disease of his patients. Oh, what a glorious physician, isn't he? What a savior he is. Hmm. Um, you notice something. Verse 32. As Jesus continues to elaborate his saving mission, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me explain this. There are no righteous people. Romans 3.10 says this categorically, there is none righteous, not even one. All humanity falls under this universal blanket, if you will, of being unrighteous. Not morally righteous. Not even one. I suppose Paul put that not even one there in case somebody raised their hands, excuse me. Now, you need to understand something here about our Lord. He wasn't suggesting by any means that there are some righteous people who didn't need him. When he says, I did not come to call the righteous. Our Lord here is really speaking ironically. He is, in fact, saying, uh, you scribes and Pharisees, you need my cure, too. You think you're righteous. You're not. You're just as sick as the tax collectors and sinners. Later in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, remember that? In Luke chapter 18, I guess we could take time to look at it. Just briefly. See what our Lord has to say. 
He tells this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Verse 9 of Luke 18. And viewed others with contempt. After all, uh, I'm righteous. I'm up here and you're down there. You're a sinner. And then our Lord gives this parable to teach profound truth here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Wonderful spiritual juxtaposition here of two men. One who was the religious elite, the Pharisee, the other a tax collector, uh, a part of the group of people despised by his countrymen. The Pharisee, verse 11, stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. That's a way of patting yourself on the back. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So the self-congratulatory prayer to himself is followed by a humble prayer from a despised tax collector. Standing some distance away, verse 13, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. That's literally what the Greek says, as shown here in the New American Standard. I tell you, Jesus continues in verse 14, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself sees himself as righteous. Self-righteousness. The one who humbles himself sees himself as unrighteous. Needing mercy. And that person Petitions God to be merciful to me, the sinner. Christ will save. It's the one the great physician saves. The one who thinks he's well when he's dying of the illness of sin will not look to the Lord for healing. So in that parable, the man humbled himself, he acknowledged his sinfulness, he asked for divine mercy, and he went home justified, declared righteous. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He was the one declared righteous, a tax collector. And the Pharisee who thought he was righteous, in God's eyes, remained what he was, unrighteous. Jesus, back in our text, says he calls sinners to repentance, people who recognize, I, I'm a sinner, just like that man in Luke 18. I know what I am. I'm a sinner. Repentance, what is it? It's a reorientation of one's life toward God. On God's terms. In the Old Testament, uh, the word refers to a turning. In fact, that's what it is. It's a turning. It's a turning away from one's 
orientation towards sin and rebellion, toward reorienting one's life toward God on his terms. Repentance. It involves a change of mind in this turning from sin. And do understand, this is supernaturally wrought. People do not do this on their own. It's a divine work. For a person to turn from sin and rebellion, the things they love, to renounce that and to live on God's terms, that takes a supernatural work in the heart. That's what God does. When Christ called Matthew, that's what he did for him. In fact, repentance is part of the gift of salvation purchased by Christ on the cross. By his death. His redeeming death. He purchased the gifts of faith and repentance, eternal life. All of that in his death for us. Now you notice something. These things go together. Repentance and faith. If you haven't picked up on that already, you more than likely have. Acts chapter 20, 21 um, says this. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, turning away from sins against him but not stopping there, moving forward to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word repentance is not used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. But the concept there is quite clear. Because Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says this, for they themselves will report about us what kind of reception we had with you when he was there in his missionary journey and preached the gospel and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Turned. They heard the gospel, believed the gospel. They understood it, the, the, the words that Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, what they were preaching um, were not the words of men but indeed the words God. And not only did they turn from their idolatry, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he had raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Wow, that, that's repentance. That's a reorientation of one's life. One day you get up in the morning and you're serving your idol and you're doing all the things that flow out of a life of idolatry. You hear the gospel, you repent, you turn from your idolatry, you then serve the true and living God and you wait for the second coming. Knowing that you've been rescued from the wrath to come, eternal damnation, that is repentance. That's a re reorientation of one's life. That's what Jesus Christ does for sinners. And that's what we tell them. 
that's what we need to do. Give that message to them. What happened to Levi or Matthew has happened to us. And like him, we ought to make sure others know it and know where they can receive the spiritual help that they need. Share the gospel and let Jesus call them to himself. By the way, let me just tell you this. You've evangelized when you share Christ. You notice something in our text. We don't have a record of what the outcome was. There's no record of them singing just as I am. We do know that Jesus showed them. What we do, we tell them. And we reserve the results to the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of examining your word again and hearing it and taking in these eternal verities allow them to shape our thinking, our life even further, that we might honor and exalt you as we uh, minister to people at large. May we be living exponents of your truth by what we say and what we do. Embolden us by your grace to declare the wonders of salvation in Christ. And we pray for those who may be hearing me now uh, who need him. Call them to yourself. They may enter a relationship with you and with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that they may be children of God. We uh, ask you to do this ultimately for your glory. And we pray these things now in Christ's holy name. Amen. We plan